everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We had to find a different way to put our passion to work. If you love your job and love what you do, every day goes on as you want it. I think how we look at art can be world-changing. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. Masks, distancing, and frequent cleaning are just the beginning. Learn more at Baltimore.org. Mariah, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good as hell. That's right. Just we had like some Lizzo. wins last week, yes. Welcome to episode 12 of How We Win. We are celebrating our election day wins. People like you stepped up to knock on doors, make phone calls, write letters, donate money, and we're not going to lie, it feels good as hell to get those wins. That's right. We showed Trump and the GOP that the blue wave is only getting stronger. So we can celebrate, but we can't stop. And we want you to join the party. Today, we have a great conversation with the president and co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy, Jennifer Epps Addison. Jen's life's work is advancing campaigns for economic and racial justice. She talks about how we can build lasting change by supporting the organizations who are in the trenches of communities our political system often leaves behind. Then we'll get a field report from Kentucky and hear what flipping the governor's mansion might mean for Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in 2020. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How We Win. As a reminder, it might feel like so much has happened since now and last Tuesday night when we declared some victories around the country. So it's good to have that reminder how good it feels when when we do the work and win. Yep, we were talking about it, that feeling that we had in 2016 when Trump was elected and then the feeling we had after the midterms in 2018. We want more of that second kind of feeling, and we got some. Uh, And we also talked about how these elections are a bellwether for what's going on with our activist energy right now. Right. So it was encouraging, but we want to keep that, that momentum going. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that it will continue. It's just, I think it's just building. And what's so amazing is to have an off-year election that people got so involved in. Turnout That's was huge. incredible. For an off-year. Yeah. 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 And then I think everybody was particularly excited to see uh, Julie Briskman uh, get, a, <laughs> get a win last Tuesday. Julie Briskman was the woman who, while riding on her bicycle— gave the middle finger, the bird, as we call it, to President Trump and his motorcade, and then lost her job, Right, was fired because of that. And she just won uh, a local office in Virginia in a district where Trump has a golf course. Yeah. So she'll have lots more opportunities. A woman angered with a lot of new time on her hands. <laughs> uh, that was a dangerous thing for them. Yeah. Uh, but it was good for us. So congratulations to her and all of the other candidates who will be taking office uh, at the beginning of the year. And I'm going to give a a bigger breakdown on Mm -hmm. all of what we did and the strategy behind it and how we're going to apply that to 2020 a little bit later. Yeah, can't wait to hear about the path we have moving forward. Excited. Yep. And of course, it's uh, must-see TV time. Open impeachment hearings. Yeah, this is going to be pretty incredible. Public impeachment hearings begin on Wednesday. Today, uh, when this 
Drops, when, this, right? when this podcast airs, they'll be kicking up, um, continuing on Friday. The Nixon impeachment was the first big televised impeachment. Uh, the Clinton impeachment was at the dawn of the Internet age. And now we have this impeachment where you're going to be able to follow along no matter where you are, what what device you're on, where whether you're at home or in your car, everybody's going to be showing it. Everybody's going to be weighing in with uh, feedback. Yeah, and and it's really important for public opinion. It's important mm-hmm. that these people are making their testimony. Um, as you said, everywhere people are going to be watching it. This isn't so much for the Republicans, senators to make up their minds because right. clearly their minds are already made up. But if public sentiment can support this strongly enough, if the case can be made for the public, then maybe we can put some pressure on those senators, especially the ones in these tricky states where we're trying to get them out in 2020, and we'll see. Yeah, everybody who's testifying publicly this week has already testified privately yeah. um, behind closed doors. And those transcripts have come out, and, and I know you read them come all, back. right? So, <laughs> so we kind of have an idea of what they're going to say, but this really is a reminder that we can put a lot of pressure on folks, and that's what the de- that's why the Democrats are opening up testimony that's frankly already been heard. Is now we get to see and hear for ourselves what these folks have been saying. And so we're going to be hearing from George Kent and Bill Taylor, who was the former ambassador and top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, who uh, had a, a lot to say about firsthand knowledge of the events surrounding the phone call in July that kicked all of this off. That's right. And um Last week's episode with Harley Ruda, he talks about what they've already seen behind closed doors is it's not just about this one phone call mm-hmm. and this one statement that Trump made, but it's this coordinated you know, bribery plot, really, this coordinated plot that happened way before that phone call, mm-hmm. leading up to the phone call, and then all the cover-up that's happened since. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a lot of... Yeah. uh, George Kent is a deputy assistant secretary of state, and he's going to testify a lot about Rudy Giuliani, Mm. who is Trump's personal lawyer, who appears to have been running a shadow foreign policy arm that the State Department was not always aware of and not doing the things that the State Department would have recommended. Rudy's lawyered up because he's been quiet. Mm. You haven't heard from him. Oh, that's right. We just had a weekend of uh, of really like non defenses from Republicans going on all the talk shows, not really with a unified message, you know, uh, just trying to denigrate again, not having much to say about the actual events. But Rudy's Rudy's nowhere. He's he has, he's usually counted to be to you know put out some batshit crazy statements. I miss yeah, that. Yeah, he he likes jumping out and and getting on TV. He's managed to not butt dial. <laughs> Any reporters for a few days, so yeah. So some maybe somebody took his phone away from him. Think, he's, he's made a few mistakes with that phone of his. I think he's been sequestered. Yeah, um, and then on Friday, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who still works at the State Department, by the way, mm. is going to be testifying um, about the smear campaign that basically boosted her out of um, the ambassadorship before this phone call happened. But she was pushing back against these requests that were being made 
for Ukraine to investigate Biden. So before the phone call even happened, she was already out. But she can let us know, like, how far in advance these uh, requests and conversations were happening. Yeah, and she's a career diplomat who has been in that position through multiple administrations and uh, has a lot of insight. All right, let's move on to our reasons for hope. Oh, there's a there's an audio a, cue for this. A now. mnemonic. Oh, right, that's what those are called. But the, listen, this lightens things up, which I really like because I lo- I love this week's reasons for hope. The first is our our Chicago teachers who mm-hmm. went on strike and got what they asked for, and the kids went on strike with them too. Some at, at some points. Right. It lasted 15 days, and they reached a new five year agreement with the city. And we always stand in solidarity with our unions and our workers and especially our teachers Mm -hmm. who, when they demand higher wages and smaller class sizes and nurses and librarians and social workers and and those kind of things, we should give that to our schools and our teachers. These are resources that shouldn't, you know, be under threat. So, yay, Chicago teachers. Congratulations. And our second reason for hope, reason for hope number two Thanks to rapid population growth and automatic voter registration, over 350,000 people have signed up to vote in the last 11 months. That's awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. The only thing to flag about that is in Georgia, they're looking to purge people from the voter rolls. Oh, Georgia. Georgia. Ah, Just when we have a good thing happen, there's Georgia to try to pull it away from us. But... Yeah, again, Stacey Abrams and Fair mm-hmm. Fight right. 2020 and all that are, are doing some great work. So we'll continue to support uh, those organizations and make sure that those voters get back on the rolls after the Republicans purge them. Right. So our work never stops with just voter registration. I mean, that's a tremendous milestone, but voter protection um, and being aware and raising flags when we see voter suppression are really important components of this as well. Yep. And then number one reason for hope, it's Virginia. We flipped both the House of Delegates and the Senate. We now have the trifecta in Virginia. And this is how we want to feel after an election, right? Yeah, it feels pretty good. I'm going to share some some key points for it. First of all, Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone who volunteered and um, and knocked on doors, made phone calls. Yes, you folks did amazing, amazing work. And um, for the first time in 26 years, Virginia Democrats control the trifecta. And wow. and we finally have a chance to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. Been working on that since 1972. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we can throw out these racially gerrymandered maps that are drawn by Republicans. We're going to be able to draw fair lines after the census. This this is the the crux of why these local legislatures are so, so important. You helped elect the first Muslim-American woman to the Virginia State Legislature, That's Ghazala right. Hashmi, Senate District 10, and 14 Democrats that were endorsed by Moms Demand Action, like Nancy Guy, House District 83, um, one and Nancy won by only eighteen votes. Eighteen votes. So that's, I mean, really validation that every single person that you talk to mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. So um, that's giving me goosebumps. That's so close. I know. That's like that is one volunteer. Like they they could have knocked on those eighteen doors. 
Right. It's it's it's, a, it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so here's a look at, at how we can pull off even bigger wins in 2020. Out of 140 Virginia seats up for election, we focused our efforts on the 20 most competitive races. Mm-hmm. Using data-driven, state-focused expertise with our Flippable team, which had just joined mm-hmm. Swing Left's family earlier this year, we analyzed all the results of presidential, statewide, state-ledge elections to identify 15 House of Delegate targets and five state Senate targets across Northern Virginia, Richmond, Hampton Roads, the whole area. In the end, 89% of our grassroots dollars and 76% of our voter turnout letters went to support Democrats in races decided by single-digit margins. So the targeting was really effective. We found those places that were going to be really tight races, and then we used our volunteer energy, our volunteer dollars to make sure we won by, you know— single-digit margins in many of those races. This is how you know that this is worth your time and investment when you see uh, results like this. Exactly. Flipped eight Republican seats, held six vulnerable uh, seats, including House District 94. That was the the one in in 2017 that was decided by drawing a name from a hat because Mm -hmm. it was a tie. And the strategy was here was twofold. We raised early money for our 20 candidates to help build their campaigns and smartly disperse later funding to the ones that need it the most. This was really effective, and the numbers are, are pretty amazing. We sent $250,000 to the candidates through our Flip Virginia Fund this summer uh, when they were still hiring their staff and building up their infrastructure. In the fall, after looking at the numbers, we dispersed 341000 via our immediate impact fund to close those fundraising gaps and boost lagging campaigns. Um, in total, Swing Left and Flippable donors and volunteers raised an incredible $863,000 for Virginia candidates. That's almost six times the cost of an average state ledge race. That's impressive. Pretty impressive. So together with volunteers from other great organizations like Sister District, Daily Coast, Pantsuit Nation, Mm -hmm. Emily's List, Vote Forward, Stand Up America, and Citizens United, Virginia, Young Democrats, College Democrats, Mm -hmm. and more, you all turned up en masse and you turned out Virginia voters. Volunteers helped get Democratic voters to the polls in three big ways. First, sending handwritten letters to Virginia voters, Mm -hmm. and then by knocking on doors, and then, of course, by making phone calls to voters. So we worked with the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, the Virginia Democratic Party, and the campaigns themselves to point those efforts into the best places where they would have the most impact. All in all, you wrote... 229,000 letters, knocked on 88,000 doors, and made 39,000 calls to help Virginia voters vote. By working together, we helped Democrats win a total of 14 of our 20 target races and flip the Virginia legislature blue. Mm Mm-hmm. Every door knocked, letter written, call made, and dollar raised made a difference, and we can't wait to do it again in 2020. This all really is how we win.
I want to tell you about another podcast I'm loving called The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. From Wonder Media, this podcast is all about amplifying the voices of women who are too often forgotten in most media coverage. It's the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. In season one, host Ashanti Golar spoke with women like Stacey Abrams who are changing the face of politics. Now Ashanti's back for season two, bringing women of color to the front lines of politics. This season is all about service, overcoming barriers, and understanding how to make positive changes to our everyday lives by taking a stand. Catch season two of The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer Epps Addison is the president and co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy. Jennifer has over 15 years of community organizing experience advancing campaigns for economic and racial justice. That includes helping coordinate the Fight for 15 campaign to raise the federal minimum wage. Jennifer is committed to supporting and growing Black-led organizations, building power in communities of color, and organizing strategies with the white working class by addressing racism head on. Jen, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So it's actually a really great way to spend your day when you get off a plane because <laughs> um, you want to try to readjust to the time difference. And so rather than like taking a nap, I get to come and talk with you. So, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Hopefully this I will feel be bad about that because yeah. I really like my naps. So. No, but then I'll just like not sleep tonight, you know, and my kids will have early basketball games and I will be miserable because I stayed up all night. So <laughs> this is I'm telling you, this is actually really good for me. And from New York, you just got back. from. I New did. York. What were you doing in New York? Oh, we were filming the last of our interviews with presidential candidates. Our network is getting ready to make an endorsement um, in the Democratic primary. And, um, you know, I have to say it was an incredibly powerful and moving experience to mm -hmm. watch people who never thought presidential candidates would care what they have to say, really own power in a room, not just telling their stories, but trying to ask the types of questions that get at the heart of the differences between the candidates. You know, we've got a really tough decision to make. And so to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one, or in this mm -hmm. case, one-on-30 with a presidential candidate for an hour and a half and grill them, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be very instructive for our membership and our network, I think. Is this the first time that you all have done this for a presidential election? It absolutely is. It's mm -hmm. actually the first time we've ever done any cross-geography massive endorsement like this. Mm -hmm. um, typically, our uh, state and local affiliates will make an endorsement. And when they think it is kind of a movement candidate, the type of candidate where people from all across the country should be there supporting them, like mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams, for example, when she was running for governor of Georgia, right. um, they'll reach up out to us and they'll say, hey, CPD Network, can you mobilize with us? And, and so that's when we would make an endorsement um, in a race. And so for the network to now say, we want to make an intervention in this presidential race, mm -hmm. we're concerned about you know, the the conversation that the that the left I'm doing air quotes like folks can see me, <laughs> they can see the those. Left. <laughs> it was in your voice. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're concerned about the conversation that the left is having, in particular, as it relates to black and and, and Latinx voters. And so we think it's important for us to actually step into this moment mm -hmm. um, and to try to help lead. Uh, to a future where we're looking at a country that actually reflects us, where we all are included, where we all have voice, rather than, you know, going back to kind of the status quo politics of even previous administrations, which, you know, to be quite honest, uh, did not live up to the promise that uh, mm -hmm. they made to our communities when we turned out and voted for them. 
We have um, a a historically diverse group of presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, Does do the candidates of color come in with an edge in these types of conversations? Do they get held to a different standard? Mm, That's really a great question. I mean, I I will say this, that uh, it is critically important that we elect more people of color, in particular women of color to office, Mm -hmm. that the you can see it in the squad. You can see it in the way that they've inspired folks all over this country to step up and become activists, to Mm -hmm. be to put ourselves on the line, to participate in our democracy. And they got a great name, too. (laughs) And we all get to be part of it. right? (laughs) Right. Like, yes, I'm definitely a part of this squad. (laughs) I want to be in. Um, But you can see it. Uh, the impact that it makes. Mm-hmm. So I think that is absolutely important. And I am, you know, grateful to the incredible organizations like She the People and mm-hmm. Higher Heights, who are, you know, training candidates and, and getting new candidates of color to run. At the at the same time, though, I mean, look, I'm, I'm from the maybe it's a little old school, but you know, all skin folk and kin folk, right. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, it's like, look, if Kanye West Decides that he wants to run for senator Which, of California. No, I think he said he was going to run for president just oh, re- just a few days, di- yesterday or a couple days ago. Well, maybe we'll get Back rid of Pence that. and then he'll be, <sighs> who knows. Anyway. Kanye, sorry, you brought uh, it If Kanye <laughs> did, <Your fault. laughs> you know, if Kanye West decided he wanted to run for Senate, um, you know, that is not a candidate I'm supporting, right? <laughs> that is not a candidate who's looking at our people and who trusts us to understand what's best for us and who listens to what we need. And I think that's like, you know, the the real issue um, in this election is, do we trust folks of color, right? Is particularly, mm-hmm. do we trust black women? Because if we did, we would look at where they're putting their energy. We would look at right. the, uh, you know, an insane and, and huge amount of free labor that they provide to try to like, protect our democracy and save our democracy in every election. And we would actually follow their lead. Um, And so, yeah, I I think that that is not just because folks are people of color, right, does not mean that they're the type of candidate that is going to be best by and large for the majority of black folks or brown folks or immigrants or poor folks, right, or queer folks in this country. You still need to look at people's record. You still need to look at the policies that they're offering. Um, you still need to look at when they have been called right out in in when they made a mistake. How mm-hmm. do they respond? You know, I think each of none of these candidates are perfect and each of them have been caught in their own moments of tension on the campaign. Mm-hmm. What was their response to that? How did they take, you know, the idea that they don't know everything and that they have something to learn from people who are upset about something they've done? How do they take that and then flip it around. Right. I think those are the types of questions our members are asking because right. we're regular people and we're poor folk and we're brown folk and we're black folk. We know people lie, right? Like we mm-hmm. know p- candidates lie. We've known it our whole lives. We've experienced it our whole lives. Um, so we're not going into this election blindly. We're not going into this election with any blind loyalty to a candidate or a party. I think mm-hmm. where most people are at right now are going into this election saying, I have a different vision for this country mm-hmm. than the Trump administration and a different vision than Democrats have allowed to come out during our big presidential elections in the past. How do I use my voice to make sure that that's not what happens this time around? We cannot afford a repeat of 2016 where too many people, including people who needed to become new voters, Mm -hmm. were completely turned off by the process. Mm. 
Right. I think we should go back for people who don't know what the Center for Popular Democracy is. <laughs> We're just like jumping is. in. I love it. No, we should. <laughs> no warm up. It's, it's so great. And I want I have like a million follow-ups to what you just said. But just for people who aren't familiar with the Center for Popular Democracy and the work that you guys do, um, tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, CPD and our sister organization, CPD Action, which is our political arm, uh, we are a network of grassroots community organizations. We call ourselves people's institutions because the memberships govern our organization. They tell us what we do, how we act, how we move, what issues we work on. Mm. Um, you know, it's an exciting time because our network is growing. And so we now have uh, 54 affiliates in 34 states, Puerto wow. Rico and Washington, D.C., um, we partner with groups in Alaska who are running recall campaigns against their governor, um, groups in you know Washington, D.C. who are setting up healthy, uh, you know, birth to three mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure in, in the city for, for um, low income parents. We work with groups, you know, all up and down the East Coast who are taking on, um, you know, banks and the profiteers and getting them one by one to stop financing mm -hmm. private detention centers for immigrants, right? These are just incredible organizations that started with a few people who were having an experience of isolation or fear or terror in some cases and looked for support. What they found was a community organization that had their back and they learned that through collective action, we can actually change a whole lot of things in this country. Um, and so, you know, that kind of grew from that local level to joining up in the states and then building across regions. And then now, you know, this network has decided they want to work as a, a national powerhouse for progressive change. And I get to be one of um, the people who gets told what to do. And, and hopefully most <laughs> days, most days I'm doing the you things. You get to they, tell people what to do sometimes well, too. You know, right? every once, I, you know, every once in a while. But I think, you know, hopefully most days I'm doing the things that these organizations who are on the front lines need mm -hmm. to just be, have the space to do what they do. You know, they... I talk about following leads, you know, we have to follow the lead of people on the ground who are in these communities who understands what it actually takes to create change long term. So we are just really trying to create a national infrastructure that helps support that. Find a moment of calm at Classical WETA 90.9 FM. Available to stream now at classicalweta.org or on the Classical WETA app. How did, how did you, first of all, you get started doing that? Like what? <laughs> let's go back. Let's go to let's, the origin story. Is this, this may become a therapy session. No, let's do it. <laughs> I love let's it. do it. This tissues right there. Can you... <laughs> um, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which last week was named the worst state or the worst city in America to be black. Wow. Mm. And I get these all confused because Wisconsin has been named the worst state in America to raise a black child. And, you know, it's it's this very um, interesting place because it's the home of dichotomies. Right. And so in the you know span where you have it being the worst, literally the worst place for black folks in the country, it is also one of the best for white people has one of the best uh, quality of life outcomes for white folks. Right. And, you know, the place where pr progressivism, progressive politics was born right? Wisconsin um, is also the home of McCarthyism, mm. right? And wow. that type of in incredible sort of authoritarian suppression. And so, you know, I grew up in this duality and it's a, it's a state I love and claim, but I think what I realized from an early age is that even though, you know, outwardly, you know, I'm queer, I'm a woman, I'm black, you know, I have this uh, connection to uh, the struggle against white supremacy and gender oppression and patriarchy, but I also carried a lot of privilege 
you know, I, I grew up in a mixed race family, which meant I got to learn how to talk white people. It's very helpful. I, you know, I don't recommend doing it all the time, but, you know, it is very helpful. In I do certain it pretty situations. much all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of the only thing I know. You know, so I and I grew up in a middle class family. I grew up with both of my parents together. Right. I, I had um, a set of protections around me so that when I was a normal you know, child and experimenting with life and learning my boundaries when I screwed up I had a force field around me to help Mm, me get through that and survive that and so I recognized that um you know early around 15 or 16 before that I was kind of a terror but at some (laughs) point I was like "Mm, other kids would end up in jail and I just got to transfer schools like this the you know there's something here um, and I remember very poignantly, our governor was trying at the time shut down Milwaukee Public Schools, which is the largest uh, school district in the state, majority uh, children of color. And um, students began to organize against it. And, and I was like, I don't know what organizing is, you know, I'm just like, whatever. But they're like, you want to walk out with us? Like the governor's trying to screw us. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. OK. So we organized <laughs> this big walkout um, against, you know, the governor's budget. And we shut down his office and we occupied his office and he ended up backing off of his plan. Wow. Um, and, and we won, you know, and that was sort of my first taste of organizing. Like, oh, when you're upset and, you know, things aren't right, there's usually a reason for it and you can do something about it. Um, and I just sort of never looked back from that. I, I count myself as an organizer my entire life from that very first action that I helped to um, put on. And even as I, you know, I dabbled in the law, I, was, I became a public defender. Um, I quickly realized that actually organizing is, is the place I want to put my energy to. I remember um, this is sort of the very specific thing that brought me back from because, you know, law school debt is real. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was in court with one of my clients and, and he was a young man. He was 17. He was effectively homeless. He was couch surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he wasn't going to school, he was on probation, right? He got probation. So the condition of his probation is you go sign up for your GED. So he goes to that and the intake, the woman doing his intake walks away and she leaves her purse sitting out on the desk and it's open and he can see the money inside and he's hungry. So he grabs Mm -hmm. a 20. Well, of course she knows exactly what happened. He gets reported to his PO. His PO calls. Did you do this? Right away says, I did it. I'm sorry. I was hungry. I went to McDonald's. I've got $14 left. I'll give it back to you. Please don't mm. revoke me. So he gets a new charge. Wow. New charge for theft. $100 cash bail. He sits in jail for months waiting to see the judge. I get the district attorney to say time served. I get the PO to agree to release the hold. This kid's coming home finally, right? After sitting in jail for months for $6. Well, the judge says, I'm not accepting your plea. And so I asked to be heard on bail. And I kid you not, he said, if your client doesn't have 10 friends, he will give him $10 mm. so that he can get out of jail. Maybe he deserves to sit in jail. Oh, my God. And that was the moment where I knew this. I can't <laughs> actually be a part of this system. Like I need to dedicate my life to transforming this system because mm. that is not a mistake. That is how the system is designed to say that people who don't have access to money don't deserve their freedom. And that's just not OK with me. Wow. So you got out of that cycle and uh, started doing something about it. So now we're back to, you know, all the great work you're doing. And you talked about 
some different ways that local groups get involved. Um, what what are some of the actions? I mean, obviously you, you were involved in the fight for fifteen. Okay. You know, um, I know you were involved in fighting the tax scam mm-hmm. and saving our health care. You were very instrumental in that. Yeah. Um, what what's one of what's like your actions? I mean, look our like? affiliates are powerful. I have to say. Mm-hmm. I I will say, you know, on the local level, our affiliates are running campaigns to, you know, for wages and benefits to increase the minimum wage, to win fair scheduling, to win paid sick days and paid family medical leave. Um, You know, they're trying to transform the criminal legal system at the local level up. And so in Milwaukee, for example, um, our affiliate is part of a group called Liberate Milwaukee that is trying to divest $25 million from the Milwaukee Police Department. The police department gets more than 50% of the entire city budget just going to policing. This is the type of work they're doing every day. They find a problem, they figure out who has the power to give them what they want, and they go out there and they organize for it. They also have to win elections to do that, right? Right. And a lot of people think, oh, you're in a progressive city like New York or LA or whatever it might be, um, Milwaukee, you know, that... Oh, it's easier. Democrats control your city. Well, the reality is, is that for a lot of people of color, the Democrats who control their cities are not their friends and are the ones who are increasing police budgets every year while, you know, cutting budgets for basic public services. Right. They're making those choices that go against the needs of our community. Um, And so, you know, organizing on local and state elections has been a huge focus of our network. And, you know, we see the results of that in the in just this past week. You know, Virginia flipped both their their Senate and their House. Our affiliate, New Virginia Majority, has been organizing year-round for years, building the type of power needed to make a victory like that happen, right? Thank you for that amazing work. Hey, shout out. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I think what you're getting at is the key to organizing that people might overlook when they first get involved in this sort of thing, which is that this a lot of work happens ahead of elections mm-hmm. and on election day, but then the work doesn't stop. Your influence has to continue and you have to not only be ready for the next election, but be holding the people that get elected accountable. Absolutely. I think we always say, you know, democracy is not voting on election day, right? The democracy is actually everything we do in between election days that helps build our power and us exercise our voice. Like that's what democracy actually is. It's why we call ourselves popular democracy, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that an activated, engaged, sustained base of people are, are coming together, are deciding collectively, are sharing power amongst each other and and really just bringing everyone from the margins into the center to think about how do we make sure everyone can have the best life. So, you know, I think that is exciting. We're seeing it happen all over the country. I mean, I felt really good after Election Day. I know a lot of people did. Um, but I don't think we can rest on that. What, what I see in the Donald Trump re-election campaign is enough to terrify anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a couple of keys to it, right? So one is a is a ride or die base. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. black women have been the ride or die base of the Democratic <laughs> Party for a long time, but yeah. we're not getting our just desserts now. Trump's ride or die base—they're getting everything they're asking for. Mm-hmm. He understands, in a way, Democrats don't seem to <sighs> that actually moving things and talking about the things that your ride or dies care about. That's such a disappointingly good point. It's true. Though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's so true. So he's got the ride or dies. Okay. You know, the next thing that he has is a is a very I mean, I don't I don't I don't credit him with this, but the people behind him holding him up, right? 
Um, and maybe it will, it could be capitalism actually when I explain this, right? And it's the concept of micro-targeting. So Trump is a master micro-targeter. Mm-hmm. And what it right. means is, is he is spending more on social media than all of the Democratic challengers combined. Way more. And he's not doing three ads that are running on every single, you know, potentially conservative place. He's doing very specific ads for very specific communities. For example, he's running ads targeting young black men, right? Saying he is the criminal justice reform candidate and that black and that Democrats care more about quote unquote illegal immigrants than they do about the the police violence against black people. Not only he's, he's coupling these ads, right? These social media ads with paying canvassers, black male canvassers in places like Philadelphia mm-hmm. to go knock those same doors and bring that message to the doors. So he is on the ground talking are, to are black communities black right now. Are those buying that bullshit? Yes. And we should be afraid. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's not quite bullshit. And I think that's the thing that he's mm. latching on to. And that's the thing Democrats have to understand. Right. And, and I will say this, you know, I've, I, I count myself as a progressive uh, you know, I mostly, I guess, you know, I vote Democratic unless I get the opportunity to vote Working Families Party or some other, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, but this party has not come to terms with whether or not it wants to be a majority people of color party. It has not come to terms with whether or not it wants to be a party that fights for people who are marginalized. We we have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. The 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 corporate wing of the party is going to have to decide, does it only like gay people or black people, you know, when we are consuming and buying their products and making them rich? So they want us to be happy, you know, they're going to put us in their ads and they want us to be happy enough that we keep consuming. Mm -hmm. Or is the corporate wing going to decide, actually, I'm going to like them in a very real way, in a way that improves their lives, in a way that takes me and my profit margins out of the equation and actually sets up structures that are rooted in what's best for people. Right. And, and if, and you know, if they can't come to terms with those things, then our party can't be unified. So all of this questioning about how do we unify the party? I think we have to understand that I'm not going to unify myself with somebody who would see my people exploited, who would stand against, you know, uh, domestic workers and care workers and home care workers, like the ones who are taking care of my father right now, mm-hmm. um, stay in poverty, despite the fact that they're providing in- incredibly important work to our economy. You know, I'm not going to align myself with somebody who will, you know, consistently tell me that, you know, just comply and be respectful so you don't get killed by police, right? Like, that's just not the the future that I'm fighting for. Well, what you're talking about, and, and it's what you consistently work on, is that intersection of, of racism mm-hmm. and economic inequality, which is what makes our country what it is, the mm-hmm. bad and the, the powerful. Absolutely. Um, but it's also hard to talk about dismantling that for those very reasons. So how are we as like the democratic family, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, how do we have those conversations? How do we have those conversations one-on-one with the people in our lives? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing candidates have them now. And it's be, I think it's because of the role social movements have played in really electoralizing our issues. Um, you know, I think the more than half of, you know, almost half of the Democratic candidates support the Green New Deal. Right. You know, almost half support Medicare for all. You know, we couldn't have said this just even four years ago. 
I think that, you know, the progressive wing of the party delivering and winning on election results from the local level up is sending a clear message to candidates about what it's going to take, particularly when you're talking about statewide vote counts and not just congressional districts. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a, a big piece of it. The you know, the other thing is. You know, going back to this idea of micro targeting that Trump is doing, you know, it is not a suggestion that you change who you are or your values that you deliver. Right. That's actually not what's happening. But it is a suggestion that you take seriously enough the issues that, um, you know, impact people's lives, that you're willing to look into them and understand that those issues are different for different people and that you can actually speak directly to the issues that matter most to, to various communities. So it's not just telling people what you think they want to hear. Obviously, be be yourself, be authentic. Absolutely. But um, understand that your view is not someone else's view and be willing to meet them where they are. And listen. Yeah. And, and listen. listen. I think yeah. it's and listen, right? I don't, I don't want us to become Trump in the pursuit of power. Like mm-hmm. that is actually the exact opposite of what black and brown people are asking for, right? Like we are asking for us to imagine a world that does not yet exist. We're asking for us to imagine a world where all of us have the freedom to thrive, right? Mm-hmm. We're asking, you know, for folks who can easily imagine a Green New Deal or Medicare for all or free college to also be able to easily imagine abolishing ICE and abolishing, you know, the prison industrial complex, that 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 those systems are just as oppressive to black and brown folks as not being able to access health care is right as not being able to have housing or as worrying about the, the, the world ending, because for so many of our families, one interaction with these agencies in our whole world actually does end. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, that is that is where our strength and, and power lies, right? Where where Trump's power lies is in isolation, right? It's in isolation and separation, right? Mm. White supremacy demands that we see each other as like as not connected. It demands that we see each other as the, as the enemy, right? Because if we're actually in conversation together and we're actually realizing how similar our struggles are and that if you draw a line to the, those who have the power to change what we're experiencing, it's going to end up all at the same place. Right. And that is, you know, that that conversation to your point about how do we have this conversation you know, I talk about the power of black and brown voters. I also recognize that struggling white folks have a imp- very important and powerful voting block. Right now, that voting block is being courted really by only one side, right? And they're they're courting it with a message of fear again, right? They're yeah. courting it with a message of supremacy again. So for us, I think we have to understand those struggles are real and painful, but we don't court the message the same way. I think we have to bring race to the forefront and we have to say exactly what's happening. We have to say, you know, white supremacy, it's a noose around the necks of communities of color. We can see that clearly, but it's also a knife in the back of struggling white communities. And we can build power together so that we all can have access to the things we need. Or you can fight with that billionaire over there, but your life is not going to change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've always just flummoxed at how people can vote against their their interests. and But you're you're making a very clear reasoning for why for why they do it because the messaging is so pointed and specific from trump and 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 um, i think you know it's the thing to understand is it's actually not against their interests their interests might they might have economic interests but that does not mean that white supremacy isn't their interest right and so in many ways right people are voting with the interests that they put first their whiteness or their maleness right Mm. um 
And they think that that's what they're aligning themselves to, right? They're, they think that they are, have more in common with Donald Trump, right? Then they have in common with the, you know, immigrant worker who's working right next to them, who's going home to the same neighborhood as them, whose kid is struggling in the same yeah. school as them. That's what we have to break down. But, you know, I think we should not be naive. And, and just like I, I believe black folks know what we're doing when we go cast our ballots, I'm very confident that the folks who voted for Trump knew what they were doing and knew what they were voting for when they went to vote for him. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the vision that you spelled out for our country is one that I really would like to see happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's, and it could. Um, and it could. Uh, so uh, since I only speak white dude, as we spoke, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, um, what are some hot tips for, you know, for white dudes like myself supporting? Um, because so often we don't. We think we do. But, it, you know, we talk a lot about like how our organizations are in sort of silos, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, certainly organizations tend to organize with people that look like them and don't always intersect. And mm -hmm. um, and I'm always hearing like, how do we bring more people <laughs> of color into our organization? And the answer is really like, you don't. You don't. You go there, <laughs> right? Yes. Tip number one. Right. <laughs> you got it. You nailed it. So, right on the head. So how, how can I and people like me be helpful? Well, be good advocates, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the positive like, note here is that, you know, what we're doing is working and it's changing lives. And I think, you know, people are more connected to folks who are not like them than they are before, right? Mm. I think movements like the Movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter have, you know, done so much work to have conversations that move us beyond the concept of equality, right, to concepts of equity, to concepts of shared power, um, to concepts of space and voice. So I think those things are really positive. And if we can hold them through this electoral season, um, that would be really good. Here's a, here's a couple of keys. First and foremost, understand that when this primary season is over, all of us are going to have to come back together around a candidate, yep. regardless of who that candidate That's is, right. to defeat Trump. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so you should do everything in your power right now, right here in this moment, to make sure the candidate you believe in most ends up being the nominee. Mm. But you should not, in that process, assume that who you think is best positioned to do that and the reasons why you think they're best positioned to be the nominee are the right ones, the correct ones, or the only ones. I think that is a, a really huge risk. As a, as a black woman, I have not made a decision who I'm voting for. I got till February before we start voting here in California, you know. Right. Um, I'm not really sure yet. But what I cannot stand is when somebody purports to tell me, somebody who has been working on justice my whole life, you know, which candidate is going to save me. Hmm. And you should help folks make that assessment. You should make the case for your candidate, but don't cross the line. Because when you cross the line from, you know, here's what I think to let me mansplain something to you. Right. And then it starts, <laughs> it goes from like, we have a disagreement on approach or policy to, I'm not sure I want to be in relationship with you. Hmm. And, you know, that's a problematic place for our party to be in. If folks are really like, I'm not sure I want to be in relationship with you. So that's number one, right? Yeah. Do every fight like hell to make sure I, I'm going to say fight like hell to make sure it's a progressive person who ends up the nominee 
but know that we all got to come together. So watch yourself, watch your language, treat people with care, treat them with respect and understand that your perspective and reasoning is yours alone. It does not apply to everyone. That's mm. really powerful, amazing advice. Oh my gosh, I need to <laughs> write so... this down and tattoo it on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Um, the second thing I'll say um, is that, you know, giving to candidates is cool. You know, giving to the Democratic Party, especially if they're actually doing doors and, you know, engaged in field work. Sorry, you know, <laughs> but where you should invest your resources in if you truly want to defeat Trump is in community organizations. Mm. That That is the, the front line of defense in, you know, places like Wisconsin, the community organizations in Milwaukee will be the difference maker in that election. They are poised to knock on hundreds of thousands of doors in a state where Trump won by less than 50,000 votes. And your state, by the way, obviously, for those who don't know, is widely considered as kind of the pivotal, most important state. Yes. Because as that goes, the rest of the Rust Belt Absolutely. is expected to go as well. Yeah. So shout out to our affiliates, Leaders Igniting Transformation and, and Black Leaders Organizing Communities. Um, they're ready to take on the charge. But it's not just in Milwaukee. You know, I look at I look at Michigan, right? Our affiliate in Michigan, Detroit Action, they're poised to knock on 60,000 doors in Detroit alone, mm. wow. right? Just in the city of Detroit. Now, Trump won Michigan by less than 11,000 votes. Right. So they are going to make sure that they pass over three times as many black voters as needed to defeat Trump without going and getting a single Trump voter from 2016. Meaning they're going to knock on or connect with all of those voters absolutely. Multiple, multiple times. Well, so. absolutely. And, 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 you know, let's be clear, like they're going to knock 60,000 doors. They're going to connect with those voters. They're going to turn out those voters. Right. Because mm -hmm. when our folks feel connected and feel want, like feel like um, their issues matter, they turn out. There mm -hmm. is no let's understand that there is this myth that black and brown folks are not turning out to vote is just a myth, right? right. When Total black myth. women in particular are the most loyal voting block of the yeah. democratic party, we are going to vote unless you force us to just be like, I can't be in community with you. Um, so, so that's a, so that's a big one. These field programs that these community organizations are um, running are the key to this election. And if it were, uh, if it were up to the party and it were up to the moneyed interests on the democratic side, what they do is wait until about August or September. And in the last kind of couple months, they'll throw black and brown organizations a little bit of money to do turnout, mm -hmm. right? Not right. to do engagement, not to do persuasion, not to build volunteer bases, but just to do straight up and down turnout. And just for context, for people who don't know what that is, turnout is that straight uh, like make a plan conversation to make sure that the, mm -hmm. you know, people who are your likely supporters but aren't great at voting come to the polls Absolutely. as opposed to persuasion, which is talking to people and persuading them uh, to get engaged. Absolutely. So I think, you know, find a community organization. Uh, I, I would recommend, you know, in your own place so that you can actually be in relationship to them. But I'd also, you know, encourage people to take a look at a couple of places. And this is, you know, the plan we have at CPD Action. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, we call them the blue wall. Mm. Um, they're not so blue, but we, we want them to be. <laughs> we want um, them to be really, really badly. Florida, mm -hmm. Arizona, big, really important, absolutely winnable. We can make this happen. And then, you know, we have to make Republicans compete. 
And so for me, looking at what has been built by grassroots organizers in Texas and Georgia is nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. And it would be an incredible mistake for us to re retract on our support there at all. If right. anything, we need to double down because we can make 2020 the year where they actually, you know, shift from red or purple. They like to say they're purple, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, red, <laughs> but where they shift to, to yeah. blue, you know, yeah. it can happen. And so th that's another place where I would tell folks absolutely make them sweat because if nothing else, if we make Republicans compete for Texas and Georgia, even if we don't quite win it yet, because we will, but mm -hmm. even if we don't quite win them yet, if we make them put their resources there, that's two Senate seats in Georgia that they have to spend money on that makes them weaker somewhere else. Right. So we've definitely got to help build um, Texas and Georgia to keep Republicans busy. Thank you for that strategy insight. Take it all. I, I, love, <laughs> yeah. I love it. If people want to donate to some of these you know, community organizations, can they do it through your main site or where should they go? So if you just go to uh, populardemocracy.org, you mm -hmm. can look at our partners and you can find our affiliates in every single state. Well, 34 of the 50 states, 34. I should say. <laughs> 50 states. Cool. One last question before we go. What gives you the most hope? Oh. Ooh, um, wow, that's a good question. That, that like hit me in a way. Mm. Um, you know, like I said, we just got done doing these endorsement interviews. And so I got to listen to the stories of our members. And I think the thing that gives me the most hope is <clears throat> the bravery that people have, the, the power in their stories, and just watching people kind of step out of the shadows, right? Because when life is hard and you're struggling, nobody's your, uh, a tougher critic on yourself than you are. Right. Um, and people feel like they made a bad choice or they made bad decisions. That's why these things are happening. And so when they step out of that and they realize I'm not the only one, this is not my fault and I can change it. I can do something about it, not just for me, but for people like me everywhere. Mm -hmm. That is just, there's not, there's the magic in that. There's like nothing else to describe it. So that's why I say to people, don't just vote. Don't just donate money. Don't just even send text messages. Find a way to get into community with people. Find a way to be in relationship with the people who are putting it all on the line to change this country because you will be transformed and you will be the best advocate, the best ally, the best co-conspirator and accomplice, whatever <laughs> you want to call it, um, if you're actually in relationship with folks. It's amazing. Your magic, Jen. Aww, <laughs> black girl magic in <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're all jet lagged thank coming in from NYC, me. but thank you for being here. No, That's thank you great. for having me. We got to swing left, y'all. I mean, <laughs> all the way left. So I'm with it. We are now joined by Stuart Max, who is the co-host of a great new podcast called Democratica. Stuart records right in Mitch McConnell's backyard in Kentucky. Mm. And besides having a great perspective on races all over the country, he's on the ground where his neighbors just sent a Democrat to the governor's mansion. Yay! Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, Stuart, uh, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling great. We've still got that, that new governor-elect smell here in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a, a very good time to be a Democrat in Kentucky, and it's it's been hard lately. Right now, we've got that river of tears flowing in Mitch McConnell's backyard, and uh, I'm enjoying it. What was it looking like before election night? You know, everything pointed to Andy 
doing very well until we got predictions on voter turnout that said that it was going to be basically what it was in 2015, which was about 30, 31 percent. And, you know, we, we were hoping for this enthusiasm that we saw in 2018, where voter turnout went up 46 percent. Mm. And if, if that didn't happen, if, if he couldn't excite a new part of the base, that was going to be a real problem. And what we saw was turnout increased by over 50 percent in Kentucky. Wow. Uh, it was a, a huge, huge rallying cry against Matt Bevin and for Andy Bashir. For those of us who are outside of this state, what was happening on the ground that helped with that turnout, do you think? So this was the best ground game operation I have seen in Kentucky in in my life. Mm. Um, it rivals some presidentials. The Bashir campaign and its associates knocked on a million doors. Wow. Uh, I personally had my door knocked five times. And uh, <laughs> they just made sure that anybody who might come out and vote for them was going to be contacted on and before election day and pulled out of their house to vote if that's what it came to. Uh, it was it was textbook ground game. Uh, and it was really refreshing to see because we, we, we haven't always seen that. And you were okay with having your door knocked on multiple times, right? You were yelling I, at the volunteers knocking on your door, right? I was thrilled every time because you can, you really can feel that energy. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge testament, just like what you guys did in Virginia. Um, these things don't happen by accident. There's this idea that people have a lot of times that elections are predetermined by candidates' positions and, and resumes. And the things that happen, the nitty-gritty, people writing letters getting on the phone, knocking on doors and voting, that matters. And when you can see that, when you see people with clipboards up and down the streets, it, it creates an energy that, that really carried us to, uh, to an Election Day victory. That's so exciting. Now, uh, the Republicans are trying to spin this by talking about the other statewide seats that they won. How do those seats differ from Andy Bashir, Matt Bevan governor race? So ordinarily, in the Trump era, when Republicans give their spin, you can pretty much count on there being no truth to it. That's been the case for a while now. There is, this was a mixed bag in Kentucky. I don't mean to bring us down, but Matt Bevan was a uniquely terrible governor and a really just bad person. And he he never bothered to try to pretend that he was anything other than what he was. And where Trump, a lot of the time, people rightfully point out that he's really just playing to his base and insulting and vilifying everybody else, Matt Bevan pretty much insulted and vilified everybody. <laughs> and, and on the other side, you've got Andy Bashir, who's, whose dad was super popular, who's been a really great uh, attorney general. His father was former governor there as well. Yes, I'm sorry. His his dad, uh, our last Democratic governor, preceded Matt Bevan, very popular through two terms, ushered in. People don't talk about this a lot anymore. It seems like very distant history, but he ushered in really the most successful Obamacare rollout in the country. Our uninsured rate really plummeted uh, over the course of his governorship, and uh, and he remains popular. So the good news is Andy Bashir ran on a continuation of that record, which is a progressive 
agenda and uh and he was able to come to victory but you know the the fact that that was the only race that democrats won is a sign that you know whereas in virginia there's a very clear turning of the tide virginia has become through a lot of hard work a blue state and um there's not really a turning of the tide in kentucky this was a referendum on matt bevan the good news is is that he debt Trump remains very popular in the state. And uh, and so he tied himself to Trump every chance he got. Mm. And it didn't work in the same way it didn't work in Kansas for Chris Kobach or Roy Moore in Alabama. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is in red states, the Trump game plan is not always going to be enough to overcome truly terrible candidates. And the Republicans have a lot of truly terrible candidates, including, by the way, the least popular senator in the country who <laughs> happens to be uh, in the House next door here and uh, up for re-election next year. So, Well, that's a great segue because I was just going to ask you um, what are people on the ground saying about this as it relates to uh, Mitch McConnell's seat or, you know, just overall in 2020? I think Mitch McConnell's elections always make people very eager and very nervous and with good reason. Um We've been hurt before, uh, right? But we've all been I hurt. I know you <laughs> especially because you're in Kentucky. But he hurts yeah, us he, all. He's an equal opportunity pain inflictor. Right. Um, so with uh, the results of this election, we're seeing that Trump's popularity has limits. Uh, Mitch McConnell is about as unpopular as Matt Bevan. So I think that this shows that Mitch McConnell is beatable. But as I said, campaigns matter, so we need to keep our eyes on the prize here uh, and uh, and see if we can seal the deal. There are a number of folks running against Mitch McConnell in 2020. Are they taking advantage of, of this, or, or do you think their campaigns will see a boost from what happened last week? I have to think that they will. Uh, I mean, there's tremendous hunger to get rid of Mitch McConnell both here in Kentucky and nationwide. As I said, I never get tired of saying it. He <laughs> is the least popular senator in the country, but he does have that air of invincibility. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw that punctured on Election Day last week. Yeah. And Mitch McConnell, I guess his approval rating right now is something like 24 percent, which <laughs> is, you know, I mean, to get us to all agree on something uh, <laughs> like uh, is difficult. Yeah, well, who we, would have thought that Mitch McConnell <laughs> would bring about bipartisan agreement? That's right. We have bipartisan agreement. Mitch McConnell is a garbage person. And yes. uh, thank you for giving us the on-the-ground report there. It's exciting to see any tide shifting, whether it's incremental mm -hmm. or large. It's a testament to, as you said, all the great groundwork that our volunteers and activists are doing. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations to all of us. Kentucky has a Democratic governor. Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We want to hear from you and we want your story. Send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcast at swingleft.org. We might play it. Maybe. We probably will. If you send it to us, we'll play it, definitely, because no one has sent us anything, so we'd be so excited. Yeah. We'd be like, someone's into something. We're going to play it. The first person to send it in has got to get played. That's right. Uh, thanks to all of our subscribers. If you aren't a subscriber yet, 
please do subscribe and rate on Apple or wherever else you get your pods. Share us with your friends and family and help us build this megaphone for the resistance. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020 on social media. Share our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us, and we're excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. See you then. MSW.